Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. This is not the most uncomfortable sermon I've ever delivered, um, uh, being rather cold. In fact, it's kind of warming up nicely. At least maybe it's just I have church vestments on, but it's kind of warming up nicely here today for me. Uh, the, the second, this is number three, I think. The second most uncomfortable was uh, Christmas Eve in the rain. For those of you who were there for that Sunday, Tim's nodding his head. It was pouring down rain. It was the park pavilion. It was COVID. Uh, it was quite the interesting outdoor service experience for those of us who were there. That was number two. And number one was actually at my previous um, uh, placement in Morgantown, West Virginia. We met in the upper room of a um, campus ministry building. And uh, they didn't tell us the air conditioner had broken. And we got there and it was 90 degrees outside and it was probably 110 degrees uh, inside. At least that's what it felt like. And so that was another service that we cut some things and made things happen quickly, um, which is really my very awkward segue into a conversation about hell. Uh, because uh, I want to speak a little bit about hell today, of, of all things. and. Uh, If you read all four of the Gospels, um, there's an uncomfortable reality that can be brought forward here, and it's easily overlooked, which is that Jesus does talk a lot about hell in his teaching. In fact, uh, Christians will say that explicitly when he talks about heaven and hell, he tends to talk a lot more about hell than he does heaven in terms of what hell is like versus what heaven is like and what's going on in hell. And that's, you know, kind of upsetting to people in our day and age. People don't like to talk about hell. Um, They don't like to talk about judgment. They don't like to talk about these things. At least they don't like to talk about it explicitly. I'm going to make the case today that people actually do like to think in these terms. But uh, in in reality, I think what's more accurate is to say uh, Jesus does talk a lot about hell like he does in our reading from Matthew 13. He's been um, talking to people who will be locked out because the narrow door has been shut And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the Bible's way of describing someone who's so um, distraught that they can't close their mouth and you can see their teeth while they're crying. Um, That's a vision of what Jesus is talking about today. Um, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, right? That this is a parable that... um, that Jesus gives us about a house and a door, and then the gate is shut, and then people can't get in. And so there's a sense here where, where even though it may not be explicitly a teaching about hell, it does sort of have this end times feel to it, and it's not wrong to sort of look at this and say, okay, Jesus is talking about hell. My theory on this, though, is not that Jesus was sort of predisposed with a message that directly related to hell. Uh, My theory on this is he talks about hell a lot because people ask him about hell a lot. 
That's one of the concerns of the day is heaven and hell and good and bad and who ends up where. People talk about that a lot in Jesus's day. Even in our own reading today, um, this question, uh, Jesus is going through all the towns and villages. He's teaching and he's preaching and doing healings and all of these things. And he's making his way toward Jerusalem to die and rise again. And someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Which is, of course, a question about how many people get into heaven and how many people don't. And this is not the only time people come to Jesus to ask him a question about heaven and hell. Uh, in Luke's gospel in particular, people come to him and they say things like, uh, hey, Jesus, did you hear about the, the tower that fell on those guys? And uh, what did they do to deserve that? The, the context being that they died this really terrific death and clearly God's judgment was happening when this tower fell on them. And, and they say, Jesus, what about you know, when terrible things happen to people? That means they're bad and they're going to hell, right? That's your punishment on them. That's God's punishment on them. Or in another reading, of course, from the book of John, um, uh, this tribunal, religious tribunal, comes together to talk about a, a blind man. And they're saying, well, who sinned this man uh, that this man was born blind? Was it his parents or like, did the child sin in utero? And the, they're trying to figure out and say, okay, well, a little bit of curse and a little bit of hell has arisen in this person and therefore there's judgment attached. So to say that Jesus talks about hell a lot is not just to say that Jesus talks about hell because it's on his mind. He's talking about hell a lot because people bring him all these stories and try to grab, grab some sort of great moral logic of the ancient world to say, well, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And so Jesus um, is teaching in that environment, so of course he's going to touch on matters of hell, and he does so in our reading today as well. Lord, will those who are saved be few. Um, and what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't answer that question. Uh, he's not going to, I think is what, Jehovah's Witnesses, he's like, he's not going to say there's exactly 144,000 of people who are going to get into heaven. That's Jehovah's Witness teaching. And there are more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, so, you know, Good luck to them. <laughs> but, but there's a sense where, where that is the question. How many people are going to heaven? And Jesus doesn't say a lot or a few. But he does say, strive to enter the narrow gate. A few words about that uh, phrase. Strive to enter the, the narrow gate, the narrow door. He says uh, gate in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke he says doors gospel. Uh, doors. Um, some people think he's talking about like a city. So you think of an ancient city and there are multiple ways to get into the city. And then there's the big gate where you can take all your possessions through and your horses and your livestock can be brought into the city. And, and that's a place where it's very popular to go through. And then there are other ways to get into the city, which may be a little less accessible, but you know, if you know what to do and you know who to talk to, you can find these other ways to get in to the city, these other doors. But either way, Jesus says, he uses this interesting word, strive. He says, strive to enter the narrow gate, the narrow door. Um, I did a little Greek work for you. I don't do this all the time, but this one's very interesting. The word for strive here is the Greek word agonizomai, agonizomai, which you can hear in it the word agony, right? Um, agony. And this word um, that is in Greek is the word that means do it so hard that it causes you pain and discomfort. That's what striving means. In fact, it's the same word the Greeks used to talk about training for the Olympic Games, right? That you would strive to win the gold. You would 
train so hard that you were exhausted and in pain and it hurt. Um, that's what we look at uh, in, in what Jesus says here. Strive to enter this narrow gate. Do everything you can, uh, is what the, the reading says, to enter the narrow gate. Fair enough so far, right? Uh, Jesus does sort of say, look, there's a way that everyone else is going, and it's the easy way, and you can kind of go with the flow. But really, it's not like that. It's finding the narrow gate and looking for the narrow gate and trying to find this other way in that's off the beaten path. But then he goes on to say more about the reading. He talks about this. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And so it's from the context here, it's clear, right? There's a bit of a chronology happening. There is a time when the gate will be closed, right? So you're either in or out, and that's the dynamic of the text. That's true. But there, there are people who think they're going to get in um, who are not going to get in. And that's something Jesus explicitly says in our reading. He says, people, people will say, hey, we ate and drank. We know you, Jesus. We know you, master of the house. Let us in. And Jesus says, uh, uh, actually, no. I, I, who are you again? <laughs> which is, of course, a very scary word, and we're not here to think necessarily that has to do with, you know, anybody in this room, and I'm like, do you really know Jesus? Does Jesus really know you? I don't think that's the point of the text specifically here. Because then Jesus goes on to say that there will be a lot of people who come into the house from the north and the south and the east and the west. What Jesus is saying here, in essence, is there are a lot of people who are going to be in this house, the city, that are going to be completely unexpected, and you have no idea how many people are going to be in this place? People you don't know. People from way outside of town. And to the people of Israel, that's a big deal, right? Because Jesus is saying it's not just the people of Israel who are going to be getting into heaven. It's people from the north and the south and the east and the west. It's people from all over who are going to be getting into heaven. And Jesus says, there are plenty of you who think by your pious works and your religious works, um, by your sort of, you know, um, punching your card and your holy displays of piety, you think you're getting into heaven. But really, you're not, because those pious works and those pious acts are really about self-righteousness and hypocrisy, and all that is going to be exposed at the end of time. And Jesus says, but for people from outside, they're going to get in, and you're not going to be, uh, you're going to be shocked, shocked, I say, at who's in and who's out. Who gets to party with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets? People from the north and the south and the east and the west, people from all over the world, not just the people of Israel. And so even though this is a question of quantity, right? Lord, will the, how many people are going to be saved? Will, will the people who are saved be few? Even though it's a question about quantity, Jesus answers with a question about quality. I'm not going to tell you how many are going to be saved, but I'm going to point to you and say, who is going to be saved? Not who you necessarily expect. And that's Jesus's word when he's asked about hell today. He says, who is going to be saved? People that you don't expect. And so one of the hallmarks of Jesus's ministry was flipping these ancient notions of good and bad and hell and heaven on their head. In that world, um, people looked at, had this assumption that uh, if you were a good person, this is what your life looked like. 
If you were a good person, you would be free from trouble because God had blessed you. You'd have tons of money because God had blessed you. People in the ancient world would look and say, prestige and status and money, those will hallmark, were the hallmarks of being blessed and saved by God. And if you were on the bottom of the cultural totem pole, if you were, uh, 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 if you were, were poor and you were destitute, um, then, then you didn't have any social standing, then odds are um, you were cursed by God and good luck to you in the next life. There's a famous parable um, where uh, Jesus tells the story about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And the guy named Lazarus is poor and he's broke and he's sitting outside and he's miserable and he has a skin disease and the dogs are licking his wounds and he's just a really miserable place. And um, the, the rich man is in heaven and he's uh, eating at the all-you-can-eat buffet and he's partying all day long. And when they both die, Jesus flips the script. The poor man who had nothing goes to heaven, and the rich man who had everything goes to hell. And that is going to blow ancient readers' minds. We've had something like 2,000 years to get used to this idea, but in the ancient world, the idea that someone would be blessed by God apart from their material success was not quite so common. And so Jesus does talk about hell a lot, but he flips the script in terms of what hell looks like. Jesus, in Jesus' world, people, again, they thought foreigners, people who were outside of Israel. Those were the bad guys. Those were the pagans. They did not have the love of God. They were going to Sheol. However, um, Jesus comes along and says, let me flip this script for you. All those people who are poor, all those, right, blessed are the poor. <laughs> um, all those people who are struggling in life, blessed are those who mourn. All those people who are at the bottom of the totem pole, those are the people that have God's attention. Those are the ones where God is doing the work. And those folks at the top who think they're all good and they're set and that God has blessed them and they can just sort of live life as they want, this presumption, as it were, that they have all the material success so they have all the spiritual success, Jesus says that's not true. That's not how this spiritual life of ours works. And so Jesus knows that in every single human heart, there is a hardwired disposition towards hell or hellish behavior. And it often manifests itself in this very question of judging others. Um, when we say things like, is she a good person? Is he a good person? Is she going to hell? Is he going to hell? What we're really doing when we do that and make these value judgments about the eternal rest of other people in such a negative way, we're really trying to say, I'm better. <laughs> because I can know who's going where and I'm much better off than they are. And so this exercise where we look at other people and talk about heaven and hell and who's going and what they're doing, I mean, even if it's Vladimir Putin, right? Uh, he is public enemy number one, but when we start to say things like, um, you know, oh, this guy's got a special room for him in hell, what we're saying is I'm better than Vladimir Putin and I know his eternal destination. And these are things which are, of course, uh, when we read the scriptures carefully, we know that they are the providence of God and not for us. And as I have said before, right, when you point the finger at other people, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. And so there's this sense in which when we are manifesting this question and asking questions like, Jesus, how many people are going to be in, in, in heaven? Will it be a lot or a few? Um, what's the spirit behind that question is not a good spirit. Because really the question is, Jesus, am I one of the few who are going to get in? 
it's a very, very interesting dynamic. And I don't think really the ancient world is all that different from our world. In our time, right, um, we talk about heaven and hell, um, but the, it's a little different, I think. Um, but we still talk about it because we definitely have our, our sort of, here's a good virtuous person who will, if they don't, if there is a heaven, they'll, they'll at least live on into eternity. Um, and here's someone who sort of meets all of our cultural standards and will grant them with um, our memories and, and give them our money and sort of make them embodiments of immortality because they embody the virtues that we want. And here are the people who are the exact opposite. Um, these are the people who are the exact opposite of what our culture embodies. And so uh, uh, we sort of dismiss them and, and write them off to sort of a social um, historical hell where we remember them for the terrible things that we did as opposed to the good things um, that this other person did. And this is every culture. It's not just our culture. But I do think this concept of who's good, who's bad, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, these are things that I think manifest in our pop culture. And so in our, in our modern day, I think there are three things that are sort of the ticket to, to modern American heaven and eternal memory and eternal blessedness in our own time. Um, you can do one of three things. You can, um, you, can, you can be hardworking. You can be really, really pretty. Or you can be really, really uh, good. Some combination of those three things, I think, have a sort of secular heaven associated them, right? You can be really, really hardworking. You can be the Bill Gates or the Elon Musk. And that becomes a sense of immortality in which these names kind of live on forever. Think of names like Rockefeller and Carnegie, people who embody this hardworking spirit, this pull yourself up by your bootstraps American dream sort of thing. Like that's one way in our culture that you can get to, to secular heaven. You can be beautiful. You can be a model or a movie star or the best looking guy in high school or the best looking girl in high school. You can be really, really pretty and get millions of TikTok followers. That's the new social media app in case you're wondering. Um, or, or Instagram followers or whichever. And so there's an immortality that comes with that. Think of um, someone like Marilyn Monroe or um, Audrey Hepburn, figures who are so well known for, for their beauty and for their embodiment of these cultural beauty values. They live on in an eternity uh, sense. They are granted our cultural's heaven. Or you can be virtuous. You can sort of toe the line of your community's virtues, red state, blue state virtues, and people will assume you are a person of ethical superiority. I think in our time, maybe Dr. the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King tends to embody this, or um, uh, um, Cesar Chavez with the farm workers movement. These are figures who had a, a really great moral vision and worked toward it and executed their moral vision, and we still remember them today. We name our roads after them. We have holidays named after them. And so we do have the secular version of, I think, some sort of eternity that we associate with people who are either really hardworking, really beautiful, or, or really virtuous. And those are, those are three I, things that manifest themselves. So, um, you know, if you want to go to heaven uh, in the year 2022 in the same way that, you know, they, people were talking about heaven in the year 32, you know, be rich or, or in, in the year 32, it was sort of be wealthy, be religious, and um, be high in social standing, right? That's what it was in 32. And today it's be hardworking, be really pretty, or be double extra virtuous, and so let's not think we're so different. Let's not think we're so different than the ancient world. Um, Jesus has to talk about hell so much because he needs to rewire our understanding of hell. 
And if you believe that good and pretty and wealthy and hardworking people go to heaven and um, poor and lazy and not working and ugly and, and otherwise social miscreants go to hell, if that's what you believe, um, Jesus has to hardwire that out of our brains as well. Because the great, um, as we'll talk about some more next week, when God's law comes, none of us are pretty, none of us are virtuous, and none of us are working hard enough. And that's the reality. But instead, all of us have the opportunity to repent, to acknowledge where we fall short. And that, my friends, is the narrow door. That is the harder thing to do, um, to recognize that when it comes to God's law and our life together, falling short is where we land. But if we can come to that place um, that we all fall short of God's law, you'll find a narrow door unlocked with a note on the door that says, Dear so-and-so, I've been expecting you. Come on in. And that is why Jesus has to talk about hell. Um, Because if he talks about hell enough to rewire our brains, perhaps we'll be able to stop judging our neighbors and love them and see them as God loves them instead. So ultimately, even though this is a passage of hell, about hell, there is at its heart a pass. This is a passage of kindness. Jesus is saying, yes, heaven is real and there's a place for us all in it. It's not the good and the bad who are saved. It's not the hardworking or the beautiful. It's the humble and repentant sinner of God who is welcomed at the narrow door. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday. Pennsylvania.